0: 2012, as I said, going to the Olympics, I was just starstruck, you know, that I was in the same village, the same arenas as some of my sporting idols. So it's a bit of a blur looking back now, but I just tried to, you know, soak as much of it in as I could. I was not afraid to go up to people that I recognised and ask for photos. And I remember in the food hall one morning for breakfast, Andy Murray was up at one of the yoghurt bars getting some muesli and yoghurt. And as soon as he like walked away, I just went and like touched the same spoon that he'd just touched just so, you know, I could say I touched that. Spoon. but yeah you know then another time Usain Bolt walked in with um, you know some of his teammates into the food hall and he was going straight to the McDonald's line he ended up getting a chicken salad or something but I'm like you could have just got that from the salad bar but anyways I took my shot and I ran up to him and I was like hey Usain can I please have a photo and he was really nice and happy to have a photo. Ever
1: wondered what it's like to be an athlete on the world's biggest stage? What really goes on inside the village? Let's find out. Legends with Bevo, the road to Tokyo. Thanks to Anytime Fitness Flannel, Renolec Electrical Services. Annabelle Smith, great to have you on the show.
0: Thanks, Bevo. I'm very excited to be here.
1: So your third Olympics, we'll get to what it's like to be in Olympics, uh, you know, for the third time in a minute. But let's talk about your journey first, how the diving, love for diving started and, and I guess how you got into it.
0: Yeah, so I grew up a really sporty kid. I was in a sporty family. So my parents enrolled me in lots of different sports to just expend all the energy that I had. And, um, you know, if I wasn't cartwheeling down the hallways at home or jumping on the trampoline, I was running laps around the backyard. So, yeah, I kind of just did normal sports like soccer, netball, little athletics. They were probably the three main ones. And then it wasn't till I was about 11, I think, that I tried a holiday program for diving at a local pool where I grew up in Melbourne and yeah i mean thought it was pretty cool pretty challenging i i don't think i really knew what diving was at the time but obviously i'd seen the diving boards before and just thought you could jump off them and didn't really know it was a proper sport and yeah then i just signed up for the term program one session a week and then yeah added that to the rest of my activities And then when I was 14, a junior high performance program was starting in Melbourne for the first time and Diving Australia were bringing in a Chinese coach, which was gonna be super special and the first time for Melbourne. And yeah, I tried out for that program and was selected. Had a lot of sort of natural talent, natural acrobatic um, and aerial awareness. And yeah, from that moment, sort of had to give up all the other activities and commit to 10 sessions of diving a week and really just, (laughs) yes, to see where it could take me. So it was pretty exciting.
1: And growing up as a kid, I, I spoke to your friend Rach Bug the other week, who's another Olympic diver who was a part of 2012 in the London Olympics as well. And and she was saying that you know she had some fellow divers that she grew up you know idolizing as such. Um, what about you? Did you have divers or uh, other Olympians that you sort of looked up to as a child?
0: Yeah, I mean, my first memory of the Olympic Games was Kathy Freeman's 400 meter gold medal at the Sydney Olympics. But I just remember as a kid every four years when the Olympics was on, I'd be glued to the TV and we'd learn about it at school and I would just be obsessed with anything that I could watch. Um, I remember watching the hockey. I remember watching the athletics, the swimming. I don't know. I just, it was the best time of the year for me watching the Olympics and watching sport on TV. So definitely grew up idolizing Kathy Freeman, like so many Australians in my generation, I guess. And, you know, at the same time, I loved watching the gymnastics. I remember Alana Slater. She was a legend back in the day and um, you know, Manette Russo, loved watching those girls as well. And then, as I said, I wasn't really probably aware of diving, but then as I got into the sport, definitely looked up to people like Ludie Torkey and um, Charlene Stratton and Bree Cole, who I then eventually got to start, you know, training with in at the AIS in Brisbane. And then obviously Matthew Mitchum, who won that gold in Beijing, was a pretty special moment and sort of catapulted diving into the news for quite some time. So... Yeah, I mean, I've had so many amazing divers come before me and people who I've been able to look up to and have taught me so much. So it's a pretty special sport to be part of.
1: And your very first Olympics back in 2012, what was that feeling like when you found out you're going to be competing competing at your very first Olympics, Annabelle?
0: Yeah, it was definitely a dream come true. As I said, since I was like seven, I was that kid that wanted to go to the Olympics. And, you know, for me, it was a matter of what sport am I going to choose to try and get there? So. When I was officially announced on that team and looking back to all those years ago when I was just dreaming about it and my parents would be like oh yeah one day one day but you know probably didn't really think it was going to come true and then just for all the sacrifice of my family and my parents for driving me around at you know stupid hours of the morning to go to training and my brother and sister who have to, had to get, give up a lot for me to be able to do diving as well you know when I made that team it all sort of made that all worth it and was my big thank you to everyone else who'd helped me to get there. So I was really just competing for my whole support team, I guess.
1: And what, what was the sort of qualifying like to actually qualify for your very first Olympics? Was it a tough qualification process or yeah, sort of give us a bit of an understanding of that.
0: Yeah, well back in 2012, it's a little bit different now, but I was going for three metres synchro in 2012 and we had an Olympic trial competition, which obviously I think we won. Um, My partner was Charlene Stratton at the time and Then we had to go overseas to a competition in America, I think, in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, and we had to get a certain score to then guarantee that we would be selected for the team. So that was very stressful. Um, But the year before that, 2011, was when we actually qualified Australia, the spot for the Olympics, and that was because Charlene and I had won a bronze medal at the World Championships in that year. And one of the good things about being young at that time and pretty naive, I didn't actually know before the competition that if you won a medal, it came top three, that it guarantees Australia a spot. So I only got told afterwards like, oh, you know, that's so good. Now the pressure's off because we've already qualified that spot. And I had no idea. So that was great. But in the years following, you know, knowing that <laughs> that going into that world championships is not not great. But yeah, so it was a pretty stressful process. But again, because I was young, I think I just didn't really have many nerves and much pressure on me. So I just went along for the ride.
1: And the actual lead-up to the Olympics, what's that like? Give us a bit of an understanding of that.
0: Yeah, the lead-up to the Olympics is an exciting time, but it's also pretty high stress. I think for me, we've just come back from our Olympic trials a couple of weeks ago, and probably the lead into Olympic trials is more stressful because you're trying so hard to make that team. Once you're on the team, you can then go over to the Olympics and really just thrive and do what you train for and give it your best shot, but to get on that Australian team is pretty challenging in the first place, so... Yeah, lots of stress, lots of nervous energy, but we've got so many people helping us to sort of channel that energy in good ways and, you know, support team looking after us. So, yeah, we're pretty lucky.
1: And one of the things I have really enjoyed chatting to different people about, Annabelle, uh, Buggy included, has been people's uh, athlete village experience. And just hearing some of the stories, like from water fights to like nine McDonald's at Atlanta back in 96 and things like that. What was your, um, you know, athlete's village experience for, for 2012 and 2016?
0: Yeah. Well, 2012, as I said, going to the Olympics, I was just starstruck, you know, that I was in the same village, the same arenas as some of my sporting idols. So it's a bit of a blur looking back now, but I just tried to, you know, soak as much of it in as I could. I was not afraid to go up to people that I recognised and ask for photos. And I remember in the food hall, one morning for breakfast, Andy Murray was up at one of the yogurt bars getting some muesli and yogurt and as soon as he like walked away, I just went and like touched the same spoon <laughs> that he'd just touched just so you know I could say I touched that spoon. But yeah, you know, then another time Usain Bolt walked in with, um, you know, some of his teammates into the food hall and he was going straight to the McDonald's line. He ended up getting a chicken salad or something, but I'm like, you could have just got that from the salad bar. <laughs> but anyways, I took my shot and I ran up to him and I was like, how are you saying Like, Can I please have a photo? And he was really nice and happy to have a photo. But then people sort of caught on and then his, you know, support crew was like, oh no, he's not having any more photos. So I feel like I was pretty lucky about that. And then probably the next, you know, one of the more memorable moments was also meeting David Beckham, Um, He took his kids to come and watch the uh, men's 10-meter final because it was in London and Tom Daly is one of the biggest divers and, you know, brought a lot of that crowd into those games. And, yeah, afterwards one of my friends from Canada and I just sort of waited around and to see where he was going to exit because most of the time they go through secure exits that the athletes can often get to but the public can't. And, yeah, we kind of followed him like down (laughs) down the um, athlete exit when most of the people had already gone and he was really nice too and took a photo with us, so... Yeah, it was just starstruck in London. And then, yeah, fast forward to Rio. I tried to, you know, be a bit more mindful that I was here to do a job first and then I can enjoy myself afterwards. But, yeah, the food hall is a buzzing place that, you know, you you see so many people from different sports, different countries, walking in and out. And, you know, they have an outdoor dining area where there was a Brazilian barbecue and, like, acai bowl things. And then there's the big international zone where you can play games and there's foosball and ping pong. And, (laughs) yeah, it's just so, so much fun. So the Olympic Village is you can't really describe it well enough um, for people to understand, but there's a definite energy, a definite buzz, and just so many smiles and happy faces. Just all grateful, I guess, to be in that environment.
1: And you touched before on the crowds. We'll get to that in a uh, in a moment in terms of what Tokyo's going to be like this year uh, with, the, with the small crowds and also no cheering. But when you're actually competing in 2012 and 2016, give us a bit of an understanding in terms of the buzz of the crowd you know, when, you, when you've when you sort of finished your dive and, and what that feeling was like as well, Annabelle?
0: Yeah, well, we're not really used to, as divers, having big crowds because generally, you know, we don't really have that many people except for competitions in China. There's always a full stadium in China. But in London, they packed out that stadium and it was a brand-new facility, so I can't remember exactly how many seats, but there was a lot of people and both sides of the diving pool. So I just remember walking out and being introduced for our first dive and just looking around like my gosh like holy cow how am I gonna you know blur this out but pretty quickly it's sort of you know the the diving focus just takes over and you sort of just go along with it but hearing the loud cheers and you know just the buzz of the arena was pretty special and then Rio was a totally different experience because we competed in an outdoor pool so not only was there not as many people in the stands in Rio also because there was no roof it sort of took Away a little bit from that atmosphere because it was so open. It had its benefits being in an outdoor pool because it was different, it looked great on TV, and the weather was really nice. So, you know, we lucked out with that, but yeah, it was a bit different because it didn't feel so insular and a little bit less noise. But yeah, both experiences were pretty cool.
1: <laughs> I'm speaking, of course, to Annabelle Smith, a three time Olympian. She's going to be part of the, the diving team for Tokyo, which is super exciting. Now, this last 12 months, we know it's uh, how difficult it's been for everyone around the world, Annabelle, but I just feel so sorry for athletes when they sort of found out the Olympics was going to be postponed. Um, I, I guess uh, give us a bit of an insight in terms of what the last 12 months have been like and, and that feeling when you found out it was going to be postponed.
0: It's really interesting to reflect back because I remember pretty clearly the news of when obviously the COVID situation was really skyrocketing and, you know, the whole world was affected and things were starting to slow down and then close down. And I remember thinking, okay, this first competition that was upcoming is canceled. Like maybe the Olympics will still go ahead. And then eventually the Olympics were postponed. And I was pretty devastated because I really felt ready. The four-year buildup, I felt ready to go. My synchro partner Maddie and I Uh, we'd been competing really well internationally and really in the right position sort of to be pushing for the medals. And yeah, I was just devastated that it was not going to happen. And so much unknown, I guess, all the athletes talk about that was a really scary part of that time last year because we just had no idea. And as athletes, we're strung in the way that we like having a plan. We like knowing what's coming up and I'm a big planner. So having my coaches and support team tell me, I'm sorry, but no one knows what's going to happen. And who knows if this will happen next year or if it won't, but we've just got to sort of reset the mind mind frame and move forward to next year and just, you know, power on. And it took me a bit of time. My sports psych sort of helped me through that period of allowing me to feel all those emotions of being frustrated, being angry, being sad, being confused. And then pretty quickly had to start sort of, all right, well, this is out of my control. This is happening. I've got to accept it and I've got to move on. So sitting here now and knowing that I'm on the team and that was a year ago and it's actually going ahead is pretty special to think about because yeah at one point I was like gee can I keep going or should I just stop now should I get with get on with my life and I'm so glad that I stuck with it because yeah now I'm going to be going to my third olympics which is pretty pretty special
1: (laughs) absolutely well deserved and uh, talking about the crowds I going to be um small crowds and they're not allowed to cheer which is bizarre but anyway Mm -hmm. uh, that's obviously the japanese um quite a few of them are not too happy about having it but it is going to go ahead at this stage which is is the best news possible which we all need you know olympics in 2021 is what we need i think for the last 12 months um some sort of something to look forward to and something to be excited about but uh what's the i guess you touched on it before annabelle in terms of there's not really huge crowds at the diving but what would it be like for you though diving when there's no cheering
0: yeah, I mean, I'm confident that the Japanese crowd will figure something out to make noise. They'll probably have those things that you, you know, bang together and make a lot of sound anyway. So I think every, every athlete just understands that for this games to go ahead, it's going to be different. There needs to be rules and protocols to make sure it's a safe game. So if that means no cheering, even though people are going to be wearing the masks, then I'm okay with that. And to be honest, like as much as the crowd is amazing, for diving specifically, it doesn't really make that much of a difference in terms of like if you're at a basketball game and like they're egging you on and you know that I'm sure you get energy from that but when we dive it's silent anyway so it's only after you do a dive that the crowd cheers so I'm not really too faced by that, but it is good to see that they're going to have 50% capacity or up to 10,000 spectators, I think, in each venue. So that's exciting because to be honest, I thought there would be none. <laughs>
1: yeah, yes. You and me both. And yeah. Imagine something like the 100 metres final, yeah. which is one of the marquee events of the Olympics yeah. having no crowd at all and the same as the swimming and, and other events. Yeah, I can't yeah.
0: imagine. That would be very weird. <laughs> yeah, most
1: definitely. And what's the situation in terms of with the COVID protocols? Uh, I've have heard people say that you have to be tested every day, but yeah, give us a bit of an insight in, term, in terms of what it's going to be like this year. So
0: we We keep getting new information all the time, but from what I can remember, the latest, we definitely do get tested every day. Even before we leave for two weeks, I think we have to log into an app through the International Olympic Committee, your sort of like health data and your temperature and if you're feeling well. And then, yeah, you get tested sort of three days, I think, before you go. Then you get tested on arrival. Can't enter Japan if you've got if you've got a positive test, you have to be negative, obviously. And then there could be up to eight hours waiting at the airport for all the processing to happen and everyone's test results to come back. And then, yeah, pretty much just masks on the whole time. Not much mingling between, well, no mingling really. Usually the best thing about the Olympics is that you can go hang out with people from other countries and meet new people, but this will very much be like, go to your room and (laughs) rest. And then you go to the pool to train and you come back to your room. So The good news is we weren't sure if the food hall would actually happen because there was some talk at one stage that maybe it would just be like packaged meals at your door every day or like within your building. But, yeah, I think they've made some changes and there's going to be tables of four but with perspex up between every seat so you're not (laughs) contaminating anyone and there's an app that shows you if the food hall's busy or if you could go at that time. So I think they're figuring it all out and it'll just be interesting to get over there and see what it's really like. But we're all prepared sort of just to keep our own space and we're not going to be hugging our friends from overseas, that's for sure. So yeah, we'll just see what it's like.
1: And you're one of the few ones that I've spoken to that have actually been through a 14-day quarantine process in a hotel. Yes. What was that experience like, (laughs) Annabelle, and and how'd you get through it?
0: Yeah, so I came over to Adelaide to get back to training September last year when Melbourne was in their lockdown still and had to do that two weeks. Going into it, I tried to prepare myself and have all the activities to do and all my friends knew I was going to be in there. So had plenty of people to talk to, but it probably wasn't as bad as I expected. We were fortunate to have a room with a balcony. So I had some fresh air and I really just enjoyed switching off and having no responsibility in my days, (laughs) but probably after the first week and as the days sort of was getting closer to leaving, I was very much ready to get out and be able to walk further than the five meters of my room, but not going to lie. I enjoyed having a bath every day and you know, just kind of going at my own pace and not having a bedtime. And I struggled a bit with the food because I'm pretty picky with food. I like to eat pretty healthy and have quite a few food intolerances that I have to work around. So I ended up doing a calls online order. You could get Uber Eats. So it wasn't too bad, but I'm not really looking forward to having to do that again either.
1: I can imagine it would have been lots of exercising as well you know, in your room, and that's yeah. especially trying to maintain that, that fitness for yeah, your diving as that well. that was the
0: biggest challenge because you can't really replicate diving when you don't have a diving board or a trampoline. So I had to get creative, bounce on my bed a few times, did some <laughs> single leg hops and calf raises. But, yeah, it was still a bit of a process to get back to full strength once we got out.
1: And you touched on that just a moment ago with the, the quarantine going forward after Tokyo Olympics. Is, is that correct that every single athlete that's been involved with Tokyo will have to quarantine for 14 days afterwards?
0: Yeah, that's definitely going to be the case. I think, again, you know, keeping us safe, keeping the rest of Australia safe, it makes sense for us to do the same protocols as everyone else. So I'm sure the Australian Olympic Committee, well, I know they're organising some fun activities for people to do in their rooms and, you know, the, the Olympics is still going to be on TV. So I'm going to have things to watch and, um, you know, plenty of people I'm sure will be touching base and... I'm not too concerned that I'll get too bored, uh, but at the same time, I'll probably be ready just to do nothing by then and have a break. So yeah, we'll see.
1: We might have to have a chat off air. I might be able to uh, do some trivia for you yeah, guys uh, to yeah. keep you guys busy. That yeah, sort of thing. that would be like cool. a trivia host. Yeah, that'd be
0: great.
1: <laughs> and after your diving career going forward, uh, what's, uh, what's life after, after diving for Annabelle Smith?
0: I definitely want to stay involved in sport. I've always been obsessed with sports since a little kid and you know, I'm not sure in what capacity or like what area exactly, but um, I'd love to work with a professional sporting team. I'd love to work within footy and I also want to stay involved in the Olympic movement. So whether that's being a team manager or a high performance manager for a sport or if it's in the media, more media sort of side of things, not really sure. But one thing I'm looking forward to once I do finish or even just take some time off is to get some work experience, which haven't been able to do in a while because I've been moving around so much and obviously with Tokyo extended. So yeah, looking forward to just to have a taste of life outside of diving and whether that's at the end of this year or in a year's time or three more years time i'm not sure yet but yeah definitely keen to stay involved in sport
1: we well, wish you all the very best in tokyo 2021 and going forward annabelle thanks so much for joining us on legends of bevo the roads to tokyo facebook live it's been a pleasure having you on today
0: thank you it's been awesome